Chapter 7 of The City of Fire by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Lawrence Shafton awoke late to the sound of church bells come alive and singing hymn tunes. There was something strangely unreal in the sound, in the utter stillness of the background of Sabbath Valley atmosphere that made him think, almost, just for an instant, that he had stumbled somehow into the wrong end of the other world and come into the fields of the blessed. Not that he had any very definite idea about what the fields of the blessed would look like or what would be going on there, but there was something still and holy between the voices of the bells that fairly compelled his jaded young soul to sit up and listen. But at the first attempt to sit up a very sharp, very decided twinge of pain caught him and brought an assorted list of words which he kept for such occasions to his lips. Then he looked around and tried to take in the situation. It was almost as if he had been caught out of his own world and dropped into another universe. So different was everything here, and so little did he remember the happenings of the night before. He had had trouble with his car, something infernal that had prevented his going farther. He recalled having to get out and push the thing along the road, and then two loutish men who made game of him and sent him here to get his car fixed. There had been a man, a queer man, who gave him bread and butter instead of wine. He remembered that, and he had failed to get his car fixed, but how the deuce did he get landed on this couch with the world of books about him in a thin muslin curtain blowing into the room and fanning the cheeks of a lovely rose in a long-stemmed clear glass vase? Did he try to start and have a smash-up? No, he remembered going down the steps with the intention of starting, but stay. Now it was coming to him. He fell off the porch. He must have had a jag on or he never would have fallen. He did things to his ankle in falling. He remembered the gentle giant picking him up as if he had been a baby and putting him here. But where was here? Ah, now he remembered. He was on his way to Opal Varens. A bet. An elopement for the prize. Great stakes. He had lost, of course. What a fool. If it hadn't been for his ankle, he might have got to a trolley car or train somehow and made a garage. Money would have taken him there in time. He was vexed that he had lost. It would have been great fun, and he had the name of always winning when he set out to do so. But then, perhaps it was just as well. Varens was a good fellow as men went. He liked him, and he was playing out and out fond of Opal just at present. It would have been a dirty shame to play the trick behind his back. Still, if Opal wanted to run away with him, it was up to him to run, of course— Opal was rare sport, and he couldn't stand the idea of smart Alec McCarter or that conceited Percy Emerson getting there first. He wondered which had won. It made his fury rise to think of either, and he had promised the lady neither of them should. What was she thinking of him by now that he had sent her no word of his delay? That was inexcusable. He must attend to it at once. He glanced around the pleasant room. Yes, there on the desk was a telephone. Could he get to it? He sat up and painfully edged his way over to the desk. "'Safely through another week, God has brought us on our way,' chimed the bells. "'Let us now a blessing seek, waiting in his courts today.' But Laurie Shafton had never sung those words in his life and had no idea what the bells were seeking to get across to him. He took down the receiver and called for long distance. "'O oh, day of rest and gladness!' pealed out the bells joyously. O oh, day of joy and light! O oh, balm for care and sadness, most beautiful, most bright! But it meant nothing to Laurie Shafton, seeking a hotel in a fashionable resort, and when he finally got his number it was only Opal's maid who answered. 
"'Yes, Mrs. Varnans was up. She was out walking on the beach with a gentleman. No, it was not Mr. Emerson, nor yet Mr. McMurder. Neither of those gentlemen had arrived. No, it was not Mr. Varens. He had just telegraphed that he would not be at the hotel until tomorrow night. Yes, she would tell Mrs. Varens that he had met with an accident. Mrs. Varens would be very sorry. Number 1, W, Sabbath Valley. Yes, she would write it down. What? Oh, the gentleman Mrs. Varens was walking with? No, it was not anybody that had been stopping at the hotel for long. It was a new gentleman, who had just come the night before. She hadn't heard his name yet. Yes, she would be sure to tell Mrs. Varens at once when she came in, and Mrs. Varens would be likely to call him up. He hung up the receiver and looked around the room discontentedly. A stinging twinge of his ankle added to his discomfort. He gave an angry snarl and pushed the wavering curtain aside, wishing those everlasting bells would stop their banging. Across the velvet stretch of lawn the stone church nestled among the trees, with a background of mountains and a studding of white gravestones beyond its wide front steps. It was astonishingly beautiful and startlingly close for a church. He had not been so near to a church except for a wedding in all his young life. Dandy place for a wedding that would be, canopy over the broad walk from the street, charming architecture. He liked the line of the arched belfry and the slender spire above. The rough stone fitted well into the scenery. The church seemed to be a thing of the ages placed there by nature. His mind trained to detect a sense of beauty in garments, rugs, pictures, and women, appreciated the picture on which he was gazing. Where was this, anyway? Surely not the place with the absurd name that he remembered now on the mountain detour. Sabbath Valley. How ridiculous! It must be the home of some wealthy estate, and yet there seemed a rustic loveliness about it that scarcely established that theory. The bells had ceased. He heard the roll of a deep-throated organ skillfully played, and now his attention was suddenly attracted to the open window of the church where, framed in English ivy, a lovely girl sat at the organ. She was dressed in white with hair of gold, and a golden window somewhere back of her across the church made a background of beaten gold against which her delicate profile was set like some young saint. Her white fingers moving among the keys, and gradually he came to realize that it was she who had been playing the bells. He stared and stared, filled with admiration, thrilled with this new experience in his blasé existence. Who would have expected to find a beauty like that in a little out-of-the-way place like this? His theory of a great estate and a rich man's daughter with a fad for music instantly came to the front. What a lucky happening that he should have broken down close to this church. He would find out who the girl was and work it to get invited up to her house. Perhaps he was a fortunate loser of his bet after all. As he watched the girl playing gradually, the music entered his consciousness. He was fond of music, and he had heard the best of the world, of course. This was meltingly lovely. The girl had fine appreciation and much expression, even when the medium of her melody was clumsy things like bells. She had seemed to make them glad as they pealed out their melodies. He had not known bells could sound like happy children, or like birds. His meditations were interrupted by a tap on the door, followed by the entrance of his host bearing a tray. "'Good morning,' he said pleasantly. "'I see you're up. How's the sprain? Better? Would you like me to dress it again?' He came over to the desk and sat down the tray on which was beautifully brown-buttered toast, eggs, and coffee. "'I brought you just a bite. It's so late you won't want much, for we have dinner immediately after church. I suppose you wouldn't feel like going over to the service?' "'Service?' the young man drawled, almost insolently. "'Yes, service is at eleven. 
Would you care to go over? I could assist you. No, I shouldn't care to go, he answered rudely. I'm pulling out of here as soon as I can get that machine of mine running. By the way, I've been doing some telephoning. He slung a ten-dollar note on the desk. I didn't ask how much it was. Guess that'll cover it. Now help me to the big chair and I'll sample your breakfast. The minister picked up the young man easily and placed him in the big chair before the guest realized what was doing, and then turned and took the ten-dollar bill between his thumb and finger and flipped it down in the young man's lap. Keep it, he said briefly. It's of no consequence. But it was long distance, explained the guest loftily. It'll be quite a sum. I talked overtime. No matter, said the minister, pulling out a drawer of the desk and gathering a few papers in his Bible. Now, would you like me to look at that ankle before I go, or will you wait for the doctor? He's likely to be back before long, and I've left a call for him. I'll wait for the doctor. The young man's tone approached the insolent note again. And by the way, I'd wish you'd send for a mechanician. I've got to get that car running. I'm sorry, said Severn. I'm afraid you'll have to wait. The only one in this region that would be at all likely to help you out with those bearings is Carter. He has a car, or had one, of that make. He might happen to have some bearings, but it is not at all likely. Or he could tow you ten miles to Monopoly, but Carter is not at home yet. The young man fairly frothed at the mouth. Do you mean to tell me that there is no one can mend a broken machine around this forsaken dump? Where's your nearest garage? Send for a man to come at once. I'm willing to pay anything. He flourished a handful of bills. The minister looked at his watch anxiously. I'm sorry, he said again. I've got to go to the service now. There is a garage at Monopoly, and their number is 97-M. You can phone them if you are not satisfied. I tried them quite early this morning while you were still sleeping, but there was nothing doing. The truth is, the people around this region are a little prejudiced against working seven days out of the week, although they will help a man out in a case like yours when they can, but it seems the repairman, the only one who knows about bearings, has gone fifty miles in another direction to a funeral and won't be back till tomorrow morning. Now, if you're quite comfortable, I'll have to leave you for a little while. It is time for my service to begin." The young man looked at his host with astonishment. He was not used to being treated in this offhand way. He could hardly believe his ears. Throw back his money and lay down the law that way? Wait, he thundered as the door was about to close upon the departing minister. Severin turned and regarded his guest quietly, questioningly. Who's that girl over there in the window playing the organ? He pulled the curtain aside and revealed a glimpse of the white and gold saint framed in the ivy. Severn gave a swift, cold glance at the insolent youth, and then answered with a slightly haughty note in his courteous voice, albeit a quiver of amusement on his lip. That is my daughter. Lawrence Shafton dropped the curtain and turned to stare at his host, but the minister had closed the door and was already on his way to church. Then the youth pulled back the curtain again and regarded the lady. The man's daughter! And playing like that! The rich notes of the organ were rolling out into the summer day, a wonderful theme from an old master grandly played. Yes, she could play. She had been well taught. And the looks of her! She was wonderful at this distance. Were these then wealthy people perhaps summering in this quiet resort? He glanced about at the simple furnishings. That was a good rug at his feet, worn in places, but soft in tone and unmistakably of the Orient. The desk was of fumed oak, somewhat massive and dignified with a touch of hand-carving. The chairs were of the same dark oak with leather cushions, and the couch so covered by his bed drapery that he could not see it, but he remembered its comfort. There was nothing showy or expensive-looking, but everything simple and good. One or two fine old pictures on the wall gave evidence of good taste. 
The only luxury seemed books, rows and rows of them behind glass doors and cases built into the wall. They lined each space between windows and doors, and in several spots reached to the ceiling. He decided that these people must have had money and lost it. These things were old and had perhaps been inherited. But the girl! She teases curiosity. She seemed of a type entirely new and most attractive. Well, here was good luck again. He would stay till church was out and see what she might be like at nearer view. It might amuse him to play the invalid for a day or two and investigate her. Meantime, he must call up that garage and see what could be done for the car. If he could get it patched up by noon, he might take the girl out for a spin in the afternoon. One could judge a girl much better getting her off by herself that way. He didn't seem to relish the memory of that father's smile and haughty tone as he said, My daughter. Probably was all kinds of fussy about her. But if the girl had any pep at all, she surely would enjoy getting away from oversight for a few hours. He hoped Opal would call before they got back from their service. It might be awkward talking with them all around. But the organ was suddenly drowned in a burst of song. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Somehow the words struck him with a strange awe. They were so distinct, and almost in the room with him. He looked about half feeling that the room was filled with people, and felt curiously alone. There was an atmosphere in the little house of everybody being gone to church. They had all gone and left him alone. It amused him. He wondered about this odd family who seemed to be under the domination of a church service. They had left him, a stranger, alone in their house. The doors and windows were all open. How did they know but he was a burglar? Someone was talking now. It sounded like the voice of his host. It might be a prayer. How peculiar! He must be a preacher. Yet he had been sent to him to fix his car. He did not look like a laboring man. He looked as if he might be, well, almost anything, even a gentleman. But if he was a clergyman, why, that of course explained the ascetic type, the nun-like profile of the girl, the skilled musician. Clergymen were apt to educate their children, even without much money. The girl would probably be a prude and a bore, but there was a chance that she might be a princess in disguise and need a prince to show her a good time. He would take the chance at least until after dinner. So he ate his delicate toast and drank his delicious coffee, and wished he had asked that queer man to have his flask filled at the drug store before he went to his old service, but consoled himself with numerous cigarettes while he watched the face of the musician and listened idly to the music. It was plain that the young organist was also the choir leader, for her expressive face was turned toward the singers and her lovely head kept time. Now and then a motion of the hand seemed to give a direction or warning, and the choir too sang with great sweetness and expression. They were well trained, but what a bore such a life must be to a girl. Still, if she had never known anything else, well, he would like to see her at closer range. He lit another cigarette and studied her profile as she slipped out of the organ bench and settled herself nearer the window. He could hear the man's voice reading now. Some of the words drew his idle attention. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. Curious sentence that. It caught in his brain. It seemed rather true. From the Bible probably, of course, though he was not very familiar with that volume, never having been obliged to go to Sunday school in his childhood days. But was it true? Were all a man's ways clean in his own eyes? Take, for instance, his own ways. He always did about as he pleased, and he had never asked himself whether his ways were clean or not. He hadn't particularly cared. He supposed some people would think they were not, 
But in his own eyes, well, was he clean? Take, for instance, this expedition of his. Running a race to get another man's wife, an alleged friend's wife, too. It did seem rather despicable when one thought of it after the jag was off. But then one was not quite responsible for what one did with a jag on, and what the deuce did the Lord have to do with it anyway? How could the Lord weigh the spirit? That meant, of course, that he saw through all subterfuges. Well, what of it? Another sentence caught his ear. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. How odd, the Lord! If there was a Lord, he had never thought much about it. But how odd, if there was a Lord, for him to care about a man's ways! If he were Lord, he wouldn't care. He'd only want them to keep out of his way. He would probably crush them like ants if he were Lord. But the Lord, taking any notice of men's ways and being pleased by them and looking out to protect him from enemies? It certainly was quaint. A quaint idea. He glanced again at the reverent face of the girl, the down-drooped eyes, the lovely sensitive mouth. Quaint, that was the word for her, quaint and unusual. He certainly was going to enjoy meeting her. Ting-a-ling-ling-ling! burst out the telephone bell on the desk. He frowned and dropped the curtain. Was that Opal? He hobbled to the desk painfully, half annoyed that she had called him from the contemplation of this novel scene, not so sure that he would bother to call up that garage yet. Let it go till he had sampled the girl. He took down the receiver and Opal's voice greeted him, mockingly, tauntingly from his own world. The little ivy-leaved church with its St. Cecilia at the organ and its strange weird message about a god that cared for man's ways dropped away like a dream that was past. When he hung up the receiver and turned back to his couch again, the girl had closed the window. It annoyed him. He did not know how his giddy badinage had clashed in upon the last words of the sermon. It seemed a long time after the closing hymn before the little throng melted away down the maple-lined street. The young man watched them curiously from behind his curtain, finding only food for amusement in most of them. And then came the minister, lingering to talk to one here and there, and his wife. It was undoubtedly his wife. Even the hair-brained lorry knew her, in the gray organdy, with the white at her neck and the soft white hat. She had a pleasant light in her eyes, and one saw at once that she was a lady. There was a grace about her that made the girl seem possible. And lastly came the girl. She stepped from the church door in her white dress and simple white hat, white even to her little shoes, and correct in every way he could see that. She was no country gawk. She came forth lightly into the sunshine which caught her hair and golden tendrils around her face as if it loved to hide therein, and she was immediately surrounded by half a dozen urchins. One had brought her some lilies, great white starry things with golden hearts, and she gathered them into her arms as if she loved them and smiled at the boys. One could see how they adored her. She lingered talking to them and laid her hand on one boy's shoulder, he walking like a knight beside her trying to act as if he did not know her hand was there. His head was drooped, but he lifted it with a grin at last and gave her a nod which seemed to make her glad, for her face broke forth in another smile. "'Well, don't forget tonight,' she called as they turned to go, "'and remember to tell Billy.' Then she came trippingly across the grass, a song on her lips. "'Some girl!' Say, she certainly was a stunner. End of chapter 7